0: Tonight's reading from the New Testament is from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and it can be found on page 4 of your bulletin. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, as I mentioned two weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, tonight we'll have um, the joy of hearing from, in a sense, one of our own. Uh, Casey and Jen and their son Woods uh, joined our congregation a year ago, they moved here. A year ago, to work with a ministry called Ministry to State, which actually Chuck Garriott leads. Chuck is over there to the side. Hi, Chuck. Good to see you here. So that's your boss, right, Casey? Okay. I don't let that bother you at all. He's such a gracious man. Anyway, uh, you know, Casey came here, and he also led something this summer called The Commons, where interns and college students met together. And I'll tell you, we heard just from so many people what a joy that was, how much they learned, the hospitality of their home, and the things that Casey brought. So uh, we're excited. He was ordained this summer and uh, we had been looking forward to uh, getting him involved uh, in our ministry before our church. So Casey, come on up, brother. We're so glad to have you here and to have you bring God's word to us.
0: Will you pray with me? Father, I ask now that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good evening. It is a real privilege to be able to share with you tonight from God's word. Glenn assigned to me the subject of vocation, and... um, Seeing as Russ Whitfield preached last week, I've been praying all week that I would have the same excitement and joy <laughs> that Russ Whitfield brings to preaching. I mean, that brother has more joy and excitement on his worst day than I do on my best day. Uh, but tonight, really, I am excited to, um, to share with you from God's Word on this important subject, the subject of vocation. Um, vocation is it's a rich concept. It's an ancient concept. It comes from this Latin word, vocare, meaning to call or to summons. It's where we get our word calling from. And um, I thought about the subject of vocation, the best way to kind of help us set the stage for this subject tonight would be to look at the great philosopher Forrest Gump. Um, The man really needs no introduction, but as you know, Forrest is this kind of naive, slow-witted, but very prodigious man. Um, And perhaps the most powerful moment in the movie comes at the very end, where he is standing over Jenny's gravestone, And he gives her something of a eulogy and he says, you died on a Saturday morning and I had you placed here under our tree and I had that house of your father's bulldozed to the ground. Mama always said dying was part of life. I sure wish it wasn't. Little forest, he's doing just fine. About to start school again soon. I make his breakfast, lunch and dinner every day. I make sure he combs his hair and brushes his teeth every day, teaching him how to play ping pong. He's really good. We fish a lot. And every night we read a book. He's so smart, Jenny. You'd be so proud of him. I am. He wrote a letter and he says, I can't read it, so I'm supposed to just leave it here for you. Jenny, I don't know if Mama was right or if it's Lieutenant Dan. I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental like on a breeze. But I think maybe it's both. Maybe both is happening at the same time. It's a beautiful and powerful scene in the movie, and it, it captures, in many ways, the tension of the movie. But as well as I think it captures the tension we all feel in our callings. Uh, Forrest, I mean, he's this, he's this young. As a young boy, he has his disability. He overcomes it, and then he becomes a star athlete at the University of Alabama, and then he goes on and becomes a war hero, and then he becomes a ping pong world champion, and then he becomes this national celebrity, and he becomes this key witness in the Watergate scandal, and then he's a shrimp and boat captain. And then he invests in Apple computers, and he becomes a husband, and he's a father. And yet, at the very end of his life, he surveys all of that, and he says, I don't know if there's any meaning in any of this. Is there any value in what I'm doing with my my life, what I did with my life? Or is this this all just accidental? What What is life? And I think for Honest Tonight, as we look at our own callings, we probably ask ourselves the same questions. Is there any value in what I do? I mean, what is... What is my calling? What am I being called to? What is God's will for my life? Well, according to the Bible, to be called is to be summoned by God to a life rooted in his mercy, to live before his face for the life of the world. So tonight, I want to unpack that definition and look at three things. First, the basis of calling. Second, the scope of calling. And thirdly, the aim of calling. So first, the basis of calling. Paul here is writing to Christians who are living in Rome. Rome is the epicenter of the world. It's the center of the world for all things politically, intellectually, culturally. It's the the city that's at the center of the world stage. It sets the agenda for everything that's going to happen in the world, in the empire. And historians have noted that Rome at this time was a volatile place for the poor, for those without citizenship, but especially for the early Christians. Suetonius, who is an early historian, noted that in AD 49, there was a great religious disturbance that expelled all the Jews out of Rome. Many of those Jews were probably early Christians. And then in AD 64, there was a fire that burned down half of Rome. The emperor Nero blamed the early Christians and he scapegoated them. Many of them were persecuted and killed. Paul writes this letter situated right between these two historical events. And here in Romans 12, he's instructing these Christians on how to live out their callings within this kind of environment, within this kind of city. Yet before he can even launch into what it even means to live, what it means to be a Christian in this context, he appeals to them. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Now, that's a throwaway statement for a lot of us. We read that, we run right past it and don't think anything of it. But for Paul, in this statement is embedded the central Point of his entire letter. From chapter 1 to 16, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God, the saving righteousness of God. Now, you and I, we arguably live in the most powerful city in the world today. Um, Washington, many will tell you, is the Rome of the 21st century. This is a city where people come to make a name, where they come to make a mark. It's a city that sets the stage, so to speak, for better or for ill. But it's a city that people come to because they think it's a city of importance. Now, as I've reflected on Washington, I've only been here a year, so I don't have super deep reflections. And most of my perspective on Washington was a caricature from coming outside of Washington. But as I've reflected on being here for the last year, the idea of mercy is in many ways like a foreign currency in Washington. You think about a foreign currency. You bring a money from a foreign place into this this other country, and it has to go through an exchange rate. It has to be converted. And depending on the market, it will either go up in value or go down in value. Washington is a city that runs on the currency of power, the currency of performance, the currency of prestige. It's a city with high expectations, high demands. I mean, the bar is set so high here. I mean, I feel it. But the currency of the Bible... The mercy of God could not be more different. In the Bible, whenever we see mercy, we are seeing the unobligated, undeserved, unexpected love and generosity of God coming to those who least expect it. We see mercy being poured on those who are broken, morally and spiritually bankrupt, those who are at the end of themselves, those who are exhausted, those who have nowhere to go. Now, how do you think a foreign currency like that is going to convert in a city like Washington? Before we begin to talk about vocation and its scope and its aim, God wants to remind you tonight that the way into the Christian life, the dynamic of the Christian life, begins by recognizing our need, our need for the mercy of God. Whether you've been a Christian your whole life, or it's a few years, or you're looking into the Christian faith, the same goes for all of us. We all have to begin from a place of need, and especially in our callings. Our callings, in many ways, draw out our desperate need for God's mercy. And so as you think about your callings tonight, I want you to, I mean, and I recognize this, how incredibly challenging this must be. You live in a city that values power, that values prestige, and here I am calling you to be a uh, honest about your brokenness, honest about your desperation. But that's where God meets us. That's where God pours out his mercy upon us. So, fundamentally, our callings are rooted in the mercy of God. But secondly, if the base of our calling is the mercy of God, the mercy of God is to touch every area of our life. And Paul here begins to explain the scope of our callings. And it's here that the scriptures actually push back on our you know, ordinary way of understanding callings. I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of talks and sermons, and read a lot of literature on callings since I've been in Washington. And without fail, every single time, they always want to talk about career. Your vocation is your occupation. Your calling is your career. And it's, if you look at the scriptures, though, they they push back on this, and they offer offer this comprehensive view of calling. This view of calling that is multidimensional, and Paul here taps into that, and he offers us a comprehensive view of what it means to have a calling. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, whether you were a Jew or a common Roman citizen, you knew what sacrifice was all about. But to talk about a living sacrifice, I mean, that's a striking image, It's an oxymoron. I mean, sacrifices don't live, they die. But what Paul's doing here is he's drawing our minds back to the priestly service. He's using a common image in a new way, and what he's doing is he's showing us that what it means to be called to priestly service, what the priestly service is, what it means to be called into the temple, to offer a sacrifice on God's altar. But Paul takes us further than that. He takes us back to the garden, Now, why the garden? Well, the garden, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. Those are the exact same verbs that we see um, the priests doing. They were working and they were keeping the temple. And what we see God doing is he's placing Adam and Eve in the original temple. Their original calling was to offer a sacrifice, but it was not a bloody sacrifice. It was a living sacrifice. It was themselves and as they offered themselves to God, they were to cultivate that garden. They were to extend the glory of that garden to the furthest ends of the earth. That was their original calling. So, what Paul's doing here by alluding to a living sacrifice is he's drawing our minds back to our original calling. He's calling us back to what we were created for. And through Jesus, the true priest, the second, the greater Adam, he restores us to our original callings, he restores us to our original vocations. And the thing that God is calling us back to is the thing that he's always wanted. He wants us to offer him ourselves. He wants you. Now, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, this is nothing new to you. This is kind of the, um, this is discipleship 101, you know, to offer um, yourself to God in all areas of life. All of life is worship. I don't think we're confused by that. But I, I think if we're really honest, we are incredibly challenged by that. Because what does that even mean? I mean, what does it mean to be a priest anyway, especially in the 21st century? Martin Luther, who was a 16th century German monk turned pastor, he wrote a lot about calling. And in his day, the church spoke on calling in a certain way. They understood calling to be this thing that ultimately, to have a true calling, was to do work for the church. And so the ultimate calling was to be a priest, to be the clergy. And Luther pushed back on that. He began to challenge that. And he said, you know, um, if Jesus is the ultimate priest, and if you're united to him, then you share in his priesthood. And what that means is that all of your life is spiritually significant. It's just not the work you do for the church, but every area of your life is spiritually significant to God. And Luther, he while he understood calling to be this one thing, the, the priesthood of believers, he spoke of calling in a more dynamic way, and he used this word what we translate into stations. It's this old word: stations or a state." And what Luther would say is that we have one calling, priesthood of believers, that's expressed through various stations. So for example, if you, if you have a family or you belong to a family, if you're a mother, or a father, you're a son, daughter, aunt, uncle, grandparent you. You bear a responsibility to a collective group of people, people that God has put around you. He's placed you in that family, that station in life. That is a calling. Paul would tell the, the Corinthians that if you neglect your family and, and fail to provide for them, you essentially deny God. So Luther would say that our families are a calling. They're a station. But if you're single and you aspire to marriage, that's a station, God calls you there to entrust the span of your life to him, to trust that he he knows the perfect timing for you, that he, he knows you're lonely, he knows you want to be married, but he calls you to trust him. That is a station in life. If you're a roommate and you have roommates, your roommates aren't just people that help you pay the bills. They are people that God has placed in your life. It's a station in life where God is calling you to practice Christian virtues, to practice sacrifice, service, and love. If you're suffering tonight, that's a station in life that God calls you into a valley to entrust your soul to a faithful creator who has found solidarity with you in the sufferings of his son. And your job, that is a station as well, a place that God has called you to serve your coworkers, to use your gifts, to work for the common good. All of these are callings. They're stations. They are altars that God calls us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And you see how different this is than the normal way of understanding calling. It's not just your career. It's the totality of your life. Live before the face of God. It's a priest offering up everything to God. And lastly, there's the aim of our callings. You know, when conversations about vocation typically happen, you'll hear this phrase, discerning your call. It's, it's an important concept in calling. You know, you'll hear things about your internal call, your external call, and all the circumstances that are around you and how you work out your calling. And Paul here kind of taps into that, but he does it in a very Jewish way. He, he, um, he shows us two things. And we're going to have two questions that I want us to answer as we close out. He shows us how to, what does it mean for our minds to be transformed? And what are we trying to understand? And secondly, how does this relate to discerning the will of God? Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, this word that Paul uses here for world, it's confusing because if you look at the Greek, the word you know, we get this word eon. It's where we, we get the word eon from this word that Paul is using. Eon, it's a, it's a long period of time. And so a better word would probably be the word age. Do not be conformed to this age. Because what Paul's doing here is he's contrasting two ways of thinking to two different ages. See, in Jewish theology, uh, it was believed that history was divided in two ages. There was the present evil age, and there was the future new age. The belief was that when Messiah would come, he would usher in the future new age, and he would radically transform the present evil age, and he would wipe it away. Now, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, what do you see? You see someone who offers up his life. You see someone who is raised from the dead. You see someone who's ascended to the right hand of the Father. Someone who sends the Spirit in the new age is ushered in. But it doesn't radically transform this present evil age. Rather, they overlap. And so we have this phrase that we use, the already not yet, that you and I are living in. We live in these two ages. And ever since the ascension of Jesus, you and I have been living in this overlap of ages. And so what Paul is saying is that the Christian mind is to be conformed to this new age. To this, to this age that is breaking in. And if you read the New Testament without fail, the new age always refers to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come, it's been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated. So the Christian mind is going to be framed by that understanding. I know that sounds weird, it may be conceptually confusing, but I'll, I'll keep explaining it. So how does this relate to the will of God? Well, Martin Luther, again, he saw the relationship between the kingdom of God and discerning the will of God in a very unique way. And for him, it had all to do with our callings. He said, just as God was hiding himself in the cross to reconcile the world to himself, so he hides himself in our vocations for the life of the world. And he had this beautiful phrase. He said, our vocations are the mask of God. The mask of God. That in our vocations, God, he's hiding himself. He's wearing a mask in what we do. So, for example, when we ask God to feed us, you know, he could send down food from heaven. He did that with Israel. But what does he do for us? What has he been doing? Well, he gives us farms. He gives us farmers. He gives us grocery stores. He gives us bakers. He gives us restaurants. He gives us home-cooked meals. God provides food. For us through the vocation, through all these vocations, the mask of God. When we ask God to heal us, He could miraculously heal us and He can miraculously heal us. But what does He normally do? He gives us doctors, He gives us medicines, He gives us physical therapists, physicians. When we ask God to teach us, what does He do? He could telepathically communicate information right into our brains, but no, He gives us teachers, He gives us books, He gives us the Bible, He gives us pastors. When we ask God to forgive us, He gives us the ministry of the church. We ask God to govern us. He gives us governments. He gives us families. All of these are the mask of God. All of these are vocations in which God is working through us for the life of the world. Others' vocations are serving us, and through our vocations, we are serving the world. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Sin messes all this up. Sin distorts our vocations. So I don't want you to make the connection that all human activity is divine activity. We have this theology of the providence of God, and it's mysterious, and we are responsible for our sin, and God will hold us accountable for our sin. But remember this, the Christian has a certain way of thinking that's framed by the kingdom of God. So when a Christian is seeking to discern the will of God, he will look on a vocation, and he will ask these questions. Does this promote life, or does this promote death? Does this promote justice or injustice? Does this serve the common good or just a few? See, the Christian will have a certain way of understanding this. He'll even look at a non-Christian's work. And if he can see a non-Christian promoting life, promoting the common good, promoting justice, he'll affirm that. And he'll say, that's God's work right there. Because we have a theology that says there's, there's this thing called common grace, that God can even work in that way. But a Christian thinks redemptively. A Christian's going to hold out hope. He's going to look at vocations, and he's going to see potential. And so as we think about our own vocations, we understand that we don't just have a job. We don't just have families. We don't just have roommates. We have callings by which we are called to serve for the life of the world. Frederick Buchner wrote that vocation is that place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. As you open your eyes to those stations you are currently in, you will find that God is hiding himself in you for the life of the world, to satisfy the world's deepest hunger. And where the world sees the absence of God, you will see the presence of God. And that will motivate your vocations. That will motivate you to want to see the gospel go forth. You'll want to see people connect the redemptive story to what they're doing. And this is a theology of vocation. This is what God's calling us to, by his mercies, to offer ourselves to him for the life of the world. Let's pray. Father, would you seal these words now upon our hearts and our minds, and may, may they bear fruit for you and for the life of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.